The views, information or opinions expressed during the Journey podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and does not represent Wise Words Imaging or any other company. Wise Words Imaging is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy. Any of the information contained in the podcast series is available from the respective owner. Enjoy the show. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain that. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will even distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimal relationship. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Joining me today on the journey is Asus Eddie Camper. Asus was born and raised in El Paso, Texas, and after 27 years of law enforcement experience, which we'll discuss, he retired from public service and transitioned his experience and expertise to the private sector as a mentor, consultant, and sounding board. He is also served as a chief deputy and chief of police on two different occasions. Welcome to the journey. Well, thank you for having us. Appreciate it there, David. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Okay, no problem. Now, I'm going to start straight away. You were born and raised in El Paso, Texas, and you worked as a police officer. What made you become a police officer? Well, you know, I was born and raised here in El Paso, Texas, to a single parent, my mother, and uh, I never really knew my dad. My dad left when I was two. I was actually raised by my grandmother, and uh, my role model was my uncle. And he was a police officer. So I uh, kind of wanted to just emulate him and be like him. But in reality, I kind of found out that I really have a servant's heart. And I just wanted to be able to help people who were less, you know, in certain situations that they could not help themselves. And I thought that being a police officer was a great calling. It was more of a calling than really wanting to do it. So I was excited about that. Yeah. Um, that sounds interesting. And it says, as a result of your last tour as a chief of police in a city impacted by racial divisions, you created and implemented an initiative for no colors, lab- no labels initiative. Now, that's got me interested because obviously we talk about the you know, current situation with Black Lives Matter. Is that similar to what you would say is Black Lives Matter or was it your own? No. So it was basically my own program. Uh, when I got hired to become the chief of police in that city, I was hired to change the, the culture. Uh, the culture was basically, it was very racially div- divided. And uh, it basically, I, I kind of make a little joke uh, about it that, you know, they, they weren't going to hire another Caucasian. They were never going to hire an African-American. So they settled for this little short caramel Mexican guy to come in and kind of change the culture. So I came in and uh, I saw a lot of racial division, a lot of uh, racial issues, the community did not get along with the police, the police did not get along with the community. 
the police actually didn't get along with uh, City Hall, uh, which is really weird. Uh, there was a blue flu at the time. And uh, I saw a lot of division. And uh, I came in and I created No Colors, No Labels, which was a program that was designed to remove the preconceived notion that the police were racially motivated. And we did that by by uh, creating equality through among all of us. And Black Lives Matter was an organization that we worked closely with. Uh, it was This was a program and initiative that, the, that I created. And we did work with Black Lives Matter. We worked with NAACP. We worked with the uh, Hispanic uh, Chamber of uh, Commerce. We worked with uh, different organizations to try to bridge that gap of racial division. And we did that by having community uh, cultural, whoa, I just lost my microphone. Uh, we did that by creating cultural awareness meals and, you know, just uh, implementing different things with the community. We, we uh, implemented the um, Cool Cops ice cream truck, uh, which was a program that uh, I created a uh, partnership with Bluebell Ice Cream. And we had a police truck that we decorated into an ice cream truck and we'd go out and, and distribute free ice cream to the kids and, and build relationships with them. So that's what No Colors, No Labels was about. So I can relate to that. Since being in America, I've seen more racial and discrimination against certain things. And when I used to be in England, where I came from in England was very anti-racial. You know, if anyone did come in that was different, it was a problem that was always picked up upon and people were quick to judge. And I felt as I grew up, that was wrong because, you know, there were so many opportunities for people to be learning from these. But because where I come from, it's a small area in comparison to the bigger scheme of things in England. It was not ready for it, if you know what I mean. And I just wish there was time for people to say, yes, I understand. I understood because I had that opportunity in school. And that's the example I'll give. When I was in school, we only had two people, I think, out for all the school uh, that was ethnic, diverse, you know, different. Mm -hmm. And we had to learn this, and I'll say their names because, you know, one was called Nigel and one was called Abdu. Mm. And they, you know, one, one was born with a white mother and one was actually from Africa. The one from Africa found it more difficult because obviously he had the South African, you know, the African accent. Right. He had the African mom, he had African dad, his brother was African. And he had more difficulties because people picked on them more. Abdu people got on with because they understood he had a white mom, he had a white, you know, black dad. So, but when someone loomed, like Nigel came in, it changed the old ball game and there was a lot more bullying as a consequence. Right. So yeah, that was a very big culture shock for me as well. You know, being in El Paso, Texas, we're very diverse. We're a very diverse community. We have all ethnic groups because we're home to Fort Bliss, one of the largest military bases in the United States. And, you know, we've got, we've got Caucasians, we've got whites, we've got blacks, we've got Asians, we've got Koreans, we've got that we had the German air force base. We've got, and we had everybody here. And then we have, international bridges uh, where we have a lot of, uh, you know, immigrant crossings. We have everything from the richest to the poorest uh, people here. So we were very diverse, you know, and uh, when I went to that community, it was a big culture shock uh, because, you know, I, I have heard about discrimination and racism towards African-Americans, but I had never actually been 
discriminated against myself, you know? So when I first got there, I was being referred to as a spick, as that greasy Mexican, as, you know, it was just, it was very, very weird. So for the three years that we were there, it was, uh, those three years almost felt like, uh, if you can imagine three years underwater, that's almost like impossible to deal with, yeah. you know? Um, but we made a lot of changes with no colors, no labels. We made a lot of in- improvements. We got the community together. We lowered crime by 20%. We implemented uh, uh, we implemented uh, Comstat, which is a uh, predictive-based policing. We did a whole lot of good things, even though the, the department wouldn't support it, because that was the biggest critic I had was the police department. Um, 95% Caucasian, 1% Hispanic, 1% African American, and 2% everything else. So it was a little hard, but you know, it's it, it's you bring up a really good point. Uh, you know, race uh, race racism is something that shouldn't be uh, tolerated. We shouldn't have to deal with it. And it's something that uh, you're not born with. It's something that you you learn as, as you as you go through, you know. And and I just wonder, you know, why society after so many years of inclusion hasn't learned to deal with the fact that inside we all we're all the same. We we bleed red. We all have hearts. We have kidneys. We got lungs. We got a brain. Some better than others. But the only difference is the color of our skin. Now, could you imagine how boring it would be if we all looked the same? That would be kind of boring. It'd be like going to the grocery store and just picking out, seeing the oranges, and they're all orange, and you just doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> so it says, um, Ben goes on to say, NCNL provided a safe community for all citizens. Is that the same sort of thing, what you're talking about? You, I know what it says in your bio, so that's why I'm just taking yeah, it out. Yeah, so, so NCNL, NCNL is no colors, no labels. It was just a shorter way of saying no colors, no labels is NCNL. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was no colors, no labels. And we did. We, we What we did is we didn't care what skin color you wear or, or anything like that. I mean, one of the biggest compliments that I had during my time as the police chief there and during the time that I was running the no colors, no labels initiative was that I had uh, an individual who was a uh, convicted felon, had done his time in prison, had come out and had changed his life around. You know, he wanted to, to do better things and do different things. And uh, I accepted him. He came in and, and he actually became a very good friend of mine. And he helped us um, do things. And uh, a lot of people kind of looked at me like, you're a police chief, you're a police officer. Why are you including this felon? And I'm like, because he's paid his debt to society. You know, he's paid his debt to society. It's his second chance. And I mean, you know, all of us in our lives, we've done things that we're, we're, that we're not proud of, uh, whether we got caught or didn't get caught. Or I mean, just we, all of us, we have things that, that we regret in life. And we've all been given a second chance or we've done something to move on. So that's what No Colors, No Labels was all about, was moving forward. You know, that's the type of mentality that I have is that everybody deserves a second, heck, even a third, sometimes even a fourth chance before you get it right. You know, yeah. I mean, Bill Gates uh, or Steve Jobs, I mean, how many chances did they get before they got it right? <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like yeah. even before, um, after Steve Jobs, it's like um, Tim Cook. I will use Tim Cook. He didn't get it right when he first came into the job because he was new to the job. Exactly. So it's about development and development. Yeah, so totally get that. So you are a firm believer in diversity and that a workforce should mirror the community that they serve. Is that a message you would say to any place of work, place of, you know, enforcement, 
anywhere, would you say working in diversity which will suit everyone will be a key to a good working relationship? Oh, absolutely. I think that the more people, you know, the, the more the different types of people that you have, you know, everyone's going to have a different idea, a different concept, a different rationale of how to do things. And the more people you bring to the table that, that are different, the more possibility and chances you have of having a successful program because you include everybody it becomes inclusive and you start restart pushing away that that racial racism and stuff like that. So I, I think it's very important to have diversity uh, in the workplace, regardless of whether it's in law enforcement and in, in anything. I mean, you know, um, so for instance, you know, like if you go to, and this is just speaking from like the older Hispanics, the older Mexicans, like like my grandmother, you know, she, she, she would go to the hospital or the doctor, but she wanted to be seen by, his, by a Mexican doctor, you know, because <laughs> he understood Mexicans. I was like, okay, grandma, but there was a Mexican doctor, you know, in case you didn't feel comfortable with a white doctor or a male or, you know, or a woman, sometimes they, they don't feel comfortable with a male doctor. They'd rather have a female doctor. So that includes all the diversity. And this, this is where you get the opportunity to have more people included and, and, and be able to help more people out. If you have, basically, if your organization mirrors your community, you know, that helps your community move forward a lot easier. Mm. I understand. So I'm saying some off the script now. What was your biggest inspiration when you were growing up and why? My biggest inspiration for not screwing up? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I screwed up a lot. I made a lot of mistakes in my life. Um, you know, I, uh, but my biggest inspiration for not screwing up is that I, I didn't want to actually prove my family right. Um, and I, when I say that, I was, you know, I was born to a single parent, my mom, but her brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, a lot of them, um, with the exception of one aunt, uh, kind of looked at me as the black sheep because you know, my mother was a single mother. Uh, she had an eighth grade education. She wasn't, you know, she, in most instances, my mother would be considered, you know, poor and, and a non-successful person. You know, while my aunts and uncles were all professionals, educated, family, husband, wife, wife, husband, kids, yada, yada, yada. And they all thought that I wasn't going to accomplish anything in my life. You know, I had an uncle who at one time, may he rest in peace, even though, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, he rest in peace, I guess. But, um, you know, he, he even said, well, you know, as long as Eddie doesn't, uh, as long as Jesus doesn't end up in prison, or, you know, selling drugs, as long as he has a job at McDonald's as a manager, that's the best we can hope for him. And I was like, wow, really? Like, thanks, man. Like, that's, that's, that's what you think of me. And you know what? In all reality, I, I've actually become the most successful person in our family. I mean, you know, I've, I, I got a 20-year career in law enforcement that I retired to go become a chief of police. I've been a chief of police twice. I've been a state director. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm currently in the process of uh, releasing my new book that comes out here on July 4th. I own two companies. Uh, I'm completing my PhD. So I guess the, mo the, the biggest reason I didn't screw up was because I didn't want to prove them right. And you know what? It took me 48 years <laughs> to realize that I had nobody, I had nothing to prove to anybody other than to myself. So now my biggest inspiration about not screwing up is uh, so I don't make myself look like a jackass.
Even but, though I've done that quite a bit. Yeah. But would you say you still make mistakes now, even if oh. you don't want to admit it? I make my, No, you see, and that's the thing. That's the thing that sets me apart from a lot of people. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm going to continue to make mistakes. And the day that I stop making mistakes is even the day I die, I'll probably make a mistake. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, um, mistakes are just part of life. And that's where you learn. If, you, if you're not making mistakes, if you're not failing at things, then that just basically means you're not trying hard enough. You know, um, I uh, and it's funny because, like I said, I'll always admit when I'm wrong. I don't like to admit it. I mean, but I will. Uh, just because I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Mm. <laughs> you sound so like me when I was younger. <laughs> so it's the saying you've now most recently served as executive director for the Council on Law Enforcement Education and Training for Oklahoma State as director. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? Well, that experience was really, uh, it was an interesting experience as well, because I was brought in as a, as a culture change agent that was brought in to change the law enforcement culture of Oklahoma, which was kind of a John Wayne kick the door down type of uh, policing. And as you all know, uh, that kind of policing is no longer acceptable in the United States. Uh, it should have never been acceptable, but now it, it really isn't. So my job there was to... Um, make sure that uh, I licensed uh, all the police officers in Oklahoma, that they met the requirements to be a police officer. We also had the training academy for the police officers at my facility. Oklahoma has one training academy where all the police officers come to. And it was my responsibility to write a curriculum for the 21st century policing, which is based on the six pillars, uh, six basic pillars, and uh, basically boil down to uh, procedural justice. And procedural justice is the golden rule of just uh, making sure you treat others the way you get, the way you want to be treated. And, you know, more uh, de-escalation, more uh, talking, less violent, uh, trying to understand mental health issues more. So that's what that was all about. However, unfortunately, in reality, the state of Oklahoma was not ready to change and uh, the direction I wanted to go to, which is the direction I was hired to go in, uh, I guess two years into it, they kind of changed their mind and they wanted to go in a different direction. Uh, so I opted to, at that time, just said, you know what, I've been doing this for 27 years, you know, law enforcement for 27 years. It's, it's time to retire and go do something I want to do. So mm -hmm. I called it quits December 20th. That was my last official day as a, as a law enforcement officer been retired since then. And I'm just, I'll tell you what, um, David, I, I, life has been fantastic for me, man. I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm making more money than I've ever made in my entire life. Um, just doing the, my company, both my companies and, and the consulting that I do. I'm having a blast being on people's podcasts and just learning and, you know, meeting new people. So yeah, yeah, that, that's what that was all about. That's amazing. So you you hold your master's degree in criminal justice and social administration. Mm -hmm. It says you're working on a, I don't know how old this up, it's been updated, but it says that you're currently working on a PhD in public service leadership. Yes. Do, do, you, so, think the, do you think the leadership is because you've always been a chief and you still want to have that instinct in you? Uh, the main reason I wanted to get the PhD is, and here we go again, <laughs> It was because I felt the need that I had to prove people wrong. You know, uh, I went after the PhD because the PhD basically makes you an expert. It labels you an expert in your field. I mean, uh, regardless of all the years of experience you have, nobody can 
with that PhD, you know, you're, you're, you're an expert in your field, period. You're a doctor and you can't go any further. That's it, you know? So uh, the reason was basically just to kind of prove people wrong again. But in reality, once I kind of got over that, as I mentioned earlier, um, I got, I'm going after the PhD because I think that people are really lacking a sense of re reality of to what leadership really is. Everybody has, you know, there is a definition of leadership in the dictionary, you know, that's to inspire, lead, coordinate and, and a group of people to follow you into a, a vision or, a, or something that they cannot see. Yet, I think that people get confused because leadership is more of a perspective. You know, um, my ideal of what a leader is is going to be different from what your vision is. And not to get political, but we can we can make this very simple is just to say the last four years, you know, there's there's half the nation thought that Donald Trump was the world's greatest leader. And the other half of the nation thought he was the worst leader ever. Um, you know, um, so who determines what leadership is in that definition? I mean, did he meet the definition in some aspects and some aspects he didn't just like we all do, you know? Um, one of the issues that I got myself into, you know, not, not trouble, but one of the issues that I had is that I always do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, David. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when I take over an organization, I don't, I don't, I don't go out and party with my subordinates. I don't drink beer. I don't hang out with them. I don't, uh, you know, my job is to come in and, and I have a mission to do. I have to lead and I have to set an example and I have to make sure that the vision is accomplished. And some people believe that I'm a horrible leader because of that, because, well, you know, the old chief, man, me and him, we used to chase women and, and drink beer together all day long. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, and, you know, they would get in trouble. And then like, well, you know, the other chief, you know, he, he, he wouldn't do anything. Oh, the other chief isn't here. I'm here. So I think uh, that's why I, I now that I'm still pursuing a PhD and I'll be done here in March of 2022 is based more on the fact that I just want to be able to get on uh, on a podcast like this with you or or anybody else or, or go, you know, do a leadership uh, uh, conference and, and talk about what the true meaning of leadership is. Because while you have a definition, that's not really the definition because it's, it's, it's open to interpretation. Everybody has a different opinion of what a leader is. Yeah, um, I remember when I was in England for so long, I used to label, uh, look at me, I'm important, I'm important. But the fact was, I was told never to have that label. You'll get recognised as you are for doing what you what are. And you don't have to put that label on yourself. And so that's my mindset. For so long, I was in the mindset, you know, one way thinking. But then towards the later half of me leaving England, I realised it can't be one mind. It's got to be open mind all round. And I think that's what is key to being a good leader is being able to understand the clear picture, not the one side vision. Absolutely, David. I totally agree with you. I mean, you have to be able to look at the vision all around you at a 360 or a 180 plethora, not just at a, you know, not just in, in one direction. So absolutely. So um, you're the owner of America's best strategic security group now and leading through adversity. Is that been the blessing for you since lockdown, since, you know, you left the police force? Well, you know, so actually America's best strategic security group has been my company for, for almost 20 years. It's actually been in business for almost 20 years. However, it wasn't um, 
it wasn't formulated as a company. It was just basically me uh, doing security consulting and stuff, you know, on the side. And in 2018, 2017 is really when I, when I incorporated, I made it an LLC and we added, you know, security guard service, private investigations, backgrounds, all sorts of stuff, um, you know, uh, to, to the agency. So I'm the CEO and owner. And right now we have about, you know, a little over, you know, 70 employees who work for us around, this, around the, we're, we're only local, we're, we're in El Paso. And of course, uh, as far as the guard services, however, my consulting has taken me all over the, all over the world, which has been really exciting. And it has been awesome. Of course, with the global pandemic, uh, all of my world traveling has uh, been devolved to Zoom uh, and I no longer get to travel because of the pandemic. And then uh, leading through adversity was, like I said, something that I just wanted to do uh, based on the fact that I think people are, are not uh, totally sold or convinced on what leadership is. So leadership uh, leading through adversity is a leadership development program that I've created where, you know, we uh, consult with uh, major CEOs and presidents and leaders of different countries. I mean, hey, we even have a couple of um, uh, restaurant uh, managers and owners who, who are part of Leading Through Adversity. And, and we give them leadership classes and ideas, and we're kind of a sounding board. We have a, one CEO that every time he has an idea before he tells anybody about it, he calls me up and he, uh, he says, hey, look, Eddie, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about doing that. You know, what do you think? And I'm like, well, you know, here's the pros, here's the cons, which ones are better, let's outweigh them. And then he makes a decision based on our conversation and then uh, he takes it off. So that's what leading through adversity does. And it, it prepares the future leaders of, 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 it prepares the future leaders of tomorrow today. And it gives uh, current leaders a sounding board to bounce ideas off of. Yeah. Would you share that anyway? So if you was to say no more, you know, pandemic, no more anything, would you say I'm going to go to, for example, England? Would you go to France? Would you go to areas that you would reach out to in your own mind? Or would you go because you would like to see the experience to see what it's like? Oh, definitely. I mean, I would definitely love to go to England and, and get to live that experience. I haven't had anybody invite me out there for a, for a consultation or anything like that. It's usually easier to go out there when somebody else is paying for your visit, uh, you know, especially if they're bringing you in to consult on their business and they fly you in and stuff. But uh, it is definitely on my bucket list uh, to definitely travel down to Europe and see the European countries and stuff like that. I find them amazing and, and just, you know, so... Uh, uh, so inspiring and so uh, yeah it's definitely something I'm, I'm looking forward to doing at some point okay for very last question what advice would you give anyone who's listening or watching this what would you tell them yeah uh the the one thing i would tell everybody is uh learn from my mistake uh if you have a vision and nobody else understands it uh that's because that vision was given to you and not to anybody else and as long as you can see that vision or that goal of where you're headed and where you're going, then do everything possible to make it happen. Manifest it. If you think you can do it, you're definitely going to be able to do it. Don't uh, let anybody else's opinion of you uh, define you and you define yourself and just keep moving forward. And it took me 48 years uh, to figure that out. And I finally figured it out. And as you can see, I'm just I'm just happy finally for a change. <laughs> And last, last, because you spoke about it earlier. So what people will see, what is your book called when it comes out and when it's available and where is it? Yes. So uh, it'll be, uh, you can get it uh, 
hard copy, uh, paperback. You can get a digital copy of it. it it's going to be uh, if you if you just go down to um, Barnes and Noble, uh, the website, or go down to Barnes and Noble or Amazon or any of the you know places where you can buy a book. The book is called Unmasking Leadership: um, a True Story About Leadership, and uh, it, it'll be available July fourth. Uh, it'll be available July 4th. So I know that's kind of a long time from now, but, um, you know, we're just down to writing the, not writing, uh, putting the final touches on it, the editing and, and the book cover, but it's called Unmasking Leadership. Thank you. And Thank you. it's been a pleasure exploring your journey. Let's hope it will continue helping others because everyone who does help has more of a journey because obviously it's a bigger tree as I call it. So, I hope it does well for you. I hope your book does well as well. And thank you for being part of the journey. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate for being letting me be here. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs>